The following interview is part of a series about life in Saudi Arabia. Join me as I embark on a journey to learn more about the place I grew up in. Make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial. Or yeah, 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 okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, never been banned from Facebook or YouTube, never been sabotaged or censored for politely expressing a difference of opinion, ex-Muslim host Ina, keeping it non-controversial. This is episode 26 and the third in my Life in Saudi Arabia series. I'm happy to have my good friend, fellow ex-Muslim and author Ali Rizvi with me here today. If you haven't checked out his book, The Atheist Muslim, make sure you do because it is things like that that bring about change. Hi, Ali. Hi, Aina. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I need to get you that um, that frequent flyer card for polite conversations. <laughs> yeah, it could go on for a long time. Yeah, you need to get a free coffee at the end of this. You're, this is what your third time on. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so you have a very similar kind of history to me, at least geographically. We have the same background. And always when we chat, I feel that we never get to focus enough on that because there's, it's always so interesting to compare notes. Yeah. Right. Um, and now this podcast is about life in Saudi. So let's talk about life in Saudi. I was reading your book and the first chapter was about yeah. your experience in school. Can you tell us a bit about that? The way that the book starts um, is it starts uh, with a teen from when I was in fifth grade. Um, so I was probably 10 or 11 years old at the time. And um, we had, it was wintertime. I went to an American school in Riyadh. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had, all our teachers were American. Uh, most of the students were American. Uh, so we had, uh, we used to make snowflakes and elves and things like that uh, out of paper, you know, just like you do uh, over, uh, during Christmas time here. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, our teacher asked us to make paper snowflakes. And, you know, we, so you fold up a piece of paper, <laughs> uh, you cut into it. Uh, you open it up and it's a snowflake and you decorate it with glue and glitter and the teacher put it up on the wall. And um, this is this is the sort of the anecdote that the book begins with. Uh, and that day, uh, someone from the Ministry of Education in Saudi Arabia uh, came to do a spot check on the school, which they used to do uh, with the foreign schools um, mm -hmm. time. And it was that day that he showed up and he saw the snowflakes. And uh, I remember him getting really angry and he asked the teacher for a pair of scissors. I mean, he said something in Arabic, but later found out that, uh, you know, he wanted a pair of scissors. She gave him a pair of scissors. Uh, he then went on to cut one of the points off of each of the snowflakes. <laughs> um, he was just there was just something about that. And it was pretty surreal because, you know, a, a class of like 20, you know, 10, 11 year olds, you know, just looking at this guy who's just absolutely furious seeing paper snowflakes and then goes ahead and cuts a point off of each one of them and then leaves. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. And so, so we had this conversation 
uh, in class and, you know, that eventually we were, a lot of us were wondering what the problem was. And then the kid uh, sitting next to me, uh, he turned around and he's like, Oh, it's a symbol of the Jews. Uh, the star of David, you know, the star of David is, you know, has six points. So uh, that so. kid instinctively knew what the problem was. Cause I would just be confused for like forever. If no one a, told a me. Lot, a lot of people didn't know, but this kid somehow knew. And I, I remember he was another Pakistani kid. Um, and, uh, he just told me, he's like, Oh, it's a symbol of the Jews. Uh, so, and I, I, I didn't know too much about the Jews at that point. Um, so I, I, but this was my first introduction to them. So it was pretty <laughs> terrifying. Snowflakes. Right. Yeah. This guy comes in and it's, it's such a, you know, you have to disfigure their symbol. I mean, they're this dangerous, evil people that, you know, you have to you know, somehow, uh, even this guy from the Ministry of Education, this grown adult, um, was threatened by snowflakes just because it represented the Star of David. So I thought, I was like, this is some pretty serious shit. I need to go and find out about this. So I went home and asked <laughs> my dad. Uh, my dad was a university professor. Um, you know, he was, he was very into, you know, he's a big political, just loved international politics. And kind of, he'd also lived all over the world. Um, so he brought down a map. We started talking. He told me about the history of Israel and Palestine and, you know, that whole thing. And uh, he brought down a map uh, that uh, we had gotten from a bookstore named Jareer Bookstore. I think their website's still oh, online. Oh, I want to talk to you about Jareer Bookstore. Like, after you tell this story... We'll talk oh, really? about Jareer okay. Bookstore, yeah. I, I, I used to love that place. Me anyway, too. I love that place. So um, it was in, you know, sort of downtown Riyadh in a place called uh, Olea, a region, the part of the city called Olea, and there was a mall called the Alakaria Mall. Uh, and uh, that's where one of the biggest branches of the uh, Jareer Bookstore was. And we had gotten this map from there, you know, a while ago. And he brought it down and uh, he tried to point out Israel and I noticed that it wasn't even, uh, it, it wasn't even on the map. I mean, it wasn't it, like on TV, what they used to do is they just used to show it as part of Palestine. They never really mm -hmm. showed Israel. They didn't recognize it. Um, but in this map, it wasn't even that it was just part of the Mediterranean. It was a little notch sticking into the land. So, um, I don't know who specifically designed that map, but, uh, it, it was, it, you know, it was literally wiped off the map. Um, so, we had, uh, I mean, th that's one of the experiences I had. Uh, and then I go on to talk about, uh, you know, just generally, you know, obviously my dad was a rational person. You know, he told me that it's not, uh, you know, this is just how the Saudis think. But, you know, there's lots of, I mean, I, I was going to school with people from, you know, 80 different countries. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, he, it, it, it was, you know, we had to, I, I had to know that all of these people, you know, they all ha have their own uh, sort of history, they all have their own values, different cultures. And we understood that. I mean, that was normal for me, um, growing up, just having friends from all kinds of different countries, speaking all kinds of different languages. I mean, I grew up in that environment. Um, so it, it was a very alien idea for me to actually take, you know, one group of people and, and hate them purely on the basis of, uh, you know, what family they were born into. You know, and uh, it was uh, so. I mean, that was one of the experiences that was really interesting. And then I go on to talk about how that came back to me uh, later on uh, in life when I was in Canada. But uh, then, you know, that that's for that. I guess you got to read the book. Mm -hmm. um, Buy the book. 
<laughs> yeah, because uh, that could go on forever. I'd have to read the whole book um, here. So. Yeah, but so so the things that struck me about that is um, the both the similarities and the differences in our experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so you grew up in Riyadh, right? Right. Uh, I grew up in Jeddah, which is like the more liberal of the two, I suppose. Yeah. Obviously not li- liberal if you put it in a Western scale, but... Um, on a Saudi scale, it's definitely liberal. Uh, mm. Definitely more than Riyadh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. so we didn't have like we actually. You talked about calling Christmas. Uh, what was it? Snowflake Day and holiday. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Christmas. It was winter. Winter holiday. Winter break. Okay. Uh, so the the winter recital. Um, yeah. So everything had to do with pretty much winter. Uh, we didn't have any, I mean, you weren't allowed to have crosses or Jesus or the nativity or any of that stuff. Yeah. But, you know, we had, you know, the guy used to dress up as Santa Claus and, you know, come to school and, you know, the Santa Claus, elves, reindeer, um, all of the other stuff, those yeah. other myths, uh, yeah. those were okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so in my school, it was like officially very secular. The education was secular, but nobody really had a problem calling it Christmas. We did call it winter holiday, but like officially on the newsletters and stuff that went home, it was winter holiday. Yeah. But but everyone yeah. called it Christmas holidays. And That's the same. I, I think I, I think uh, when we were talking to each other, it wasn't like nobody was allowed to use the word Christmas. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, when I was very little, um, we actually had like a like a Christmas pageant uh, where there was a nativity and we sang really like, now I think back, we're singing like religious Christian songs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I was dressed as one of the wise men and my mom had to go find one of those like long tunic type things for me to wear. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so it's strange, like how in Saudi we had that, um, uh, no, we we had uh, we didn't have anything uh, like that unless it was done very unofficially. But yeah, just just to clarify, uh, what I what I was talking about is the official position. If there was anything that came out of the school that was written, uh, we were uh, if they were inviting the parents to the the recital, it would be winter recital. The break would be winter break. Mm-hmm. But uh, among each other, yeah, everybody used to talk about Christmas. Mm-hmm. Used to talk about you know within the school in in person. Yeah, um, they they did. It, it it was kind of. I, I remember another incident. I mean, this isn't this isn't in the book, uh, but uh, we had a science teacher in grade five, and when we were learning about evolution in the in the science textbook, mm-hmm. she just stopped and she told us to close the books, and she said that you know God created the earth. Uh, she was American, yeah. So, so like she was white American. Um, and uh, she had, uh, she she wanted to basically tell us that evolution is, but like you know, evolution isn't as controversial in Islam as it is in yeah, Christianity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I noticed that. So, so she told us all this stuff about how the Earth is six thousand years old, and then she had us read through the book again, and then every time it said, uh, you know. Uh, somehow this happened, or you know, it, it, any any time it explained how things got started, um, and how life got started, or uh, any anything like that. Uh, she would, she just point out every part. That of, sounds of really wrong. I mean, uh, yeah. she wasn't told by the uh, the by the First Amendment. Um, she wasn't what? Sorry, she, she wasn't bound by the the. the um, 
you know, the establishment of uh, uh, state religion, the, the, you know, the, the ban against that in the U.S. In the U.S., you can't teach that in a public school. You know, yeah, you no, but, I understand. Uh, but in uh, Saudi Arabia, she wasn't bound by that. She could uh, do whatever. And that wouldn't have been as controversial. Huh. Lakes, however, were. So. <laughs> I get the sense that in my school that would have been controversial because religion was almost never mentioned, except for that one early nativity that I'm talking about. But that was actually a different school. That was my first school. But anyways. Um, yeah. I, I mean, if uh, I'm I think that if anybody had reported her, um, she may have been reprimanded, but I don't think she would have been fired or anything like that. But um, I, it was a very sort of out of the ordinary kind of incident. That's why I remember it. Uh, mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, we had another science teacher, I think, in sixth grade. Um, I, I can't remember. But he he was uh, either lazy or he really loved Carl Sagan because, you know, we <laughs> go to the class and he'd just show us. He just put on the Carl Sagan Cosmos series on Betamax video. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, Betamax. I remember Betamax. Yeah, so he'd, he'd put that on. And then that's that's. I, I loved that. That was amazing. And then, it, it, you know, the Carl Sagan say, it's not like it is now we can go home and check it out on YouTube or anything. Yeah. I mean, we, that was my only access to it was in school. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't really get it anywhere else, you know, videotapes of it. Uh, but like, I, I just remember watching that and just keeping it in my memory uh, for a very long time. Cool. So it, it was that as well. And it, it was uh, it was an interesting experience. When I think we, like you said, I think I heard your uh, episode with uh, Moody that you did. I listened to it this morning. And, and so, yeah, I, I heard it with uh, the, the very first episode, the first Moody. Yeah. And, um, yeah, she's just a, she's a total hero. I mean, she's just, she's like brilliant, articulate. And, and, you know, I was listening to that and where you were talking about interaction with uh, uh, the Saudis. And that was pretty much the same for us is that uh, we were kept segregated from the Saudis. And, you know, we had our own private schools. We had our own compounds. Um, I, interestingly, uh, lived on a Saudi compound. What? So I was not, well, not a Saudi, Saudi compound, but it was an international compound that had a lot of Saudi people on it. Saudis were allowed to live yeah. in your compound? That's very rare. Well, my father used to, he used to be a professor at uh, the King Saud University in Riyadh. So he actually worked in the, he was one of the people who was called in to teach them. He was a professor of urban planning. Mm. Uh, and all of his students were Saudi males. It was a, it was a Saudi university. Uh, so the families of all of the professors and anybody else who worked at the university uh, used to live in the Kingside University compound. Okay. And, right. So so we had Matawas on our compound. We had, uh, you know, our swimming pool, our rec center. You know, the swimming pool had uh, male uh, timings and female timings and, um, you know, all of that stuff. My, my even going out of the house, I mean, not even in the local areas, even going out of the house, uh, my... Um, uh, my mom, my sister would have to wear the abaya. So, or the, in the compound? In the compound, yeah. Oh, Saudi that sucks. That like, yeah, wow, that's very different from our compound. Yeah. Um, what kind of, what uh, what compound, what company, or you don't have to say the company. Yeah, but, no, I can't say yeah, that. <laughs> but what, uh, you can't even say what compound you were at then. No, I can't, I can't tell you. <laughs> and, but. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But uh, you can't. Yeah, I know you can't say it on the air. I can't say it on so. the air. I'm not as brave as you. But I'll, I'll just to explain to whoever is listening. Um, 
you know, the way that Saudi Arabia worked is they suddenly got really, really rich in the 70s, you know, because of oil. And, you know, there was, there was OPEC and uh, they, they had, you know, a lot of people who were essentially Bedouins and, and they weren't very educated. Suddenly they had all this money. They wanted to develop the country and they didn't know what to do. Uh, so they had to hire foreign expertise because nobody within Saudi Arabia was qualified. So um, they got everybody from oil engineers to, you know, telecom. I think Phillips Erickson was there. Uh, Bell Canada was there. Um, all of the Bell Canada, the Canadian um, kids from uh, the Bell Canada compound used to come to our school too. They also used to go to the American school. So they they brought in all of these people, all this foreign expertise to kind of, you know, build the country. Uh, but they didn't want them mixing with Saudi locals. So uh, they set up these compounds where all of you weren't allowed to own land in yeah. Saudi Arabia. And you couldn't own your own land. So your employer had to provide housing. So if you're if your uh, father or, or mother, actually, usually father, uh, worked for uh, Phillips Erickson, um, then you'd be at the Phillips Erickson compound. Yeah. And uh, that's where, uh, you know, and while you were there, inside that compound, the Saudi rules didn't really apply. Exactly. So, so it, was, it was very different. Once you stepped out of the compound, you know, you had to uh, comply with the local Saudi rules. You had to wear the abaya. You had to... Uh, women couldn't drive and so on. Well, women usually wouldn't drive inside the compounds either. They so did in hours in the early days. So things started changing in our compound. Um, like when I was younger, there was a bar, there was a theater, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was a Christmas parade, there was a yeah. club, all kinds of stuff. Women used to bathe topless at the pool. But mm-hmm. then... I think somehow, like, they started to allow Saudis to live in, and then it was, like, one family and another family, and they started to object. And just throughout the years, we saw it deteriorate, just life deteriorated. Well, it it changed. One of the things that happened is uh, as they started building up, so as as I mentioned, my dad, the university, used to teach in, it was only Saudi males allowed in that university. So... You know, we were, my school, the American school used to go up until ninth grade. And I think the maximum any English school or any other kind of foreign school could go up to was 12th grade. After that, all foreign kids had to go overseas and go to boarding school. Yeah, that's what happened with me too. Because what they wanted to do was that the reason that they got in all of these foreign professors and uh, foreign professionals is uh, to be able to train the Saudis and specifically the Saudi males. Uh, even though there were there was a section for the women as well that was separate and had much less funding mm-hmm. uh, so they had um so once the, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, you know saudis started to become educated you know over the period of maybe a couple of decades or 15 20 years then there are the saudi students are they're graduating they're going overseas you know getting their specialization then they were coming back and they were replacing the foreigners as professors as everything else so uh, that's probably why later on you started seeing saudi families moving back in mm-hmm. uh, not back in they weren't allowed though before even but, if yeah. The Saudis that worked at my dad's company did not, they were not allowed to live on the compound with the, the Westerners or the foreigners. Um, right. But at some point that changed and then mm. they were allowed in and then the swimming pool started to have separate timings and, um, you know, then the Westerners started to leave from the compound. And what a lot of the Saudis did is that in our compound, there was like, you know, like little white 
picket fences and low hedges and stuff around everyone's houses that made it look cute. But then when yeah. Saudis come in, they they built these giant unfinished gray brick walls for <laughs> privacy around their house. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was just strange. I mean, I, I think it's uh, it's just interesting that when I talk to the locals, I, I mean, I was saw we always heard about the royal family. You know, they had a little bit of music on TV at that time. They just had two channels uh, for entertainment. One was in Arabic, one was in English. Uh, and, you know, they'd occasionally have music and stuff like that. And I noticed that actually the um, the population, the average Saudi, um, and I had a little bit more interaction with them than you did just because of where I lived. on, on the compound. And you're male, so I guess you could go more places. That as well, yeah. Um, and they, they seem to be a lot more conservative, like the, the men and the women. I mean, they seem to, I, I remember once I was at the, at the rec center and I was playing, you know, those, uh, what do you call it, foosball, the, yeah. the soccer, the table soccer things. And, uh, and we were talking about music. Um, and I was talking to my friend about music and we came outside and these two kids, you know, they're just like taller kids. They came up to us. It's like, you know, why are you talking about music? You know, he's like, if you're in our country, you need to respect you know what we do and then i i remember telling them like but they have music stores there it's these are the things that boggle my mind they don't want you to talk about music but they have like cd stores why they do they They had uh, tapes and i i mentioned that to them i was like not only do you have i mean you have tape stores and and you even have music on tv right but occasionally they would show music on tv they would um on saudi channels Uh, on uh, the english channel so at at that time on channel two so there was yeah. Channel 1 and Channel 2, that's it. Right. It was <laughs> Five channel o'clock, one. there was cartoons, and yeah. often they were interrupted by soccer, which was done right. with Arabic commentary, even on Channel 2, which was the English channel. So right. you'd wait all day for the fucking cartoons. It wasn't like today. Like, kids today, oh. they have, like, YouTube and channels upon Netflix. channels, Netflix. Yeah. We'd that's wait great. till 5 o'clock. Till the cartoon started for like, I don't know, a couple of hours. But even then, sometimes if there was a soccer game, it'd be, you know, just interrupted. And um, so so you're you're kind of um, I I guess we're probably close in age, right? (laughs) Yeah, I just dated myself there. I know you did. But the um, we had and during Ramadan, it was great, though, because, you know, they would start the cartoons a little bit earlier. And then, you know, during the. the iftar or the, the fast breaking thing that had really good shows on full house. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that wasn't my favorite, but you no, know, they had, uh, you're like the first Saudi expat that I know that did not like rush after iftar to go watch full house, like full no, house. No, we did. I had my whole family used to sit and watch full house. It was a very good family show. There was small wonder. There was, I think at one point there was punky Brewster and, and they would show yeah, all punky of the shows Brewster. like, and you would have a, a you know an episode uh, every day. They'd sh- they'd show them back to back, and there were no commercials. Were they like they were like a decade old when we got them, though? Right? I'm pretty sure. Were they like yeah, they were? Uh, I I don't think they were a decade old. They were because I, I remember. No, they weren't. They definitely weren't because uh, I remember when you know the Challenger space shuttle blew up. Uh, so I'm yeah. just ready. To sing. I'm 41 years old, right? So yeah, I okay, I'm I'm younger than you, Ali. Uh, okay, of course you. I, I mean, like, I don't even know why you need to say that. Uh, the <laughs> it's obvious. The so the um, I, when the Challenger space shuttle blew up, I remember watching 
an episode of Punky Booster just like a week or two after that, that uh, where they talked about the Challenger space shuttle and in that episode. Okay, um, so I was like, I, I was really young, young and did not notice any current events in any of the shows. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. when it comes to politics, I, I I don't remember anything about those shows, but I just remember that Ramadan is associated with Full House for sure. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it is Ramadan. When you think of Ramadan, you think of Full House. Right. That's just like a Saudi <laughs> Saudi tradition. And if you were a kid, like. You, you're just starting to fast and you're starting to feel grown up. And then, you know, I remember that the very few times that I actually did fast, I was starting to like pray, I guess. It didn't last very long, but you'd yeah. rush through the the sunset, the Maghrib prayer, because you did not want to miss Full House. So like, you're just like not even caring what you're saying because mm-hmm. Full House <laughs> oh, we always made it. For us, it was tougher because we're Shia, right? My family was a Shia family. Uh-huh. And our iftar is 10 minutes after yours. I think it's it's uh, the Sunnis uh, do it um, uh, right at sunset and the Shias do it after the sun oh, has gone. Oh, I didn't so, know so that. Like that. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a full 10 minutes afterwards. So we, we, we almost always made it on time. But it was, uh, yeah, we had to watch everybody else eat for... Uh, oh, that ten- sucks. Yeah, I know. It's, what uh, difference does the 10 minutes make? Like, these little things in sects of religion seem so silly to me. Like, religion is obviously silly anyways. Yeah, but it is, yeah. Like, so. just, just compromise on that 10-minute thing, man. It's part, like. of the, <laughs> it's part of the whole self-flagellation. We like torching ourselves. And, uh, Shia. Shia is like... Um, they yeah, they enjoy like a BDSM night or something. Yeah, so that's actually you know, well, I mean, t- pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna it, piss a lot of people off with that comment. Am I not? For the first time in your life, I know you're gonna piss somebody off. I right? know. I never. I don't know what that feels like. You the the um, one interesting thing, I guess, in, in another place where our experiences would diverge would be the Shia thing, because uh, uh, the Shia were are pretty much considered heretics. Yeah, by the the Sunni, well, the Wahhabi and the, the Salafi orthodoxy there. So we had we had to do all of our uh, we had we I talk about this in a lot of detail in the book. The um, we used to do this uh, thing called the Majalis, which is or Majalis is plural. yeah yeah. And uh, during the month, the Islamic month of Muharram, about fourteen hundred years ago, Muhammad's grandson Hussein uh, was killed in battle. And the Shia still mourn that every year. So when you have seen, if, you, if you've seen any pictures online on Ashura of uh, people in Iraq cutting themselves with knives and bleeding and beating themselves, uh, that is part of that self-flagellation tradition that happens on Ashura uh, for Shia Muslims. Mm-hmm. So up there we couldn't do it. And most people don't really do the knives and the blood, obviously. Uh, so we used to um, basically have the... Uh, we used to have tapes of recorded like much less again Betamax we used to play it on uh, a t- television set and they used to clear out the floor put sheets on it everybody would just sit down and listen and uh, you know someone always had the remote control in case there was a raid because you know the, the Saudis would raid this stuff to see if there are any Shia practicing wow uh, and so so you could quickly switch the channel and you could just pretend it's a it's a party right you could just pretend it's a get together and a dinner party oh, that kind shit. of like that's pretty cool. Yeah, see, that stuff I have no idea about. I guess that's the Sunni privilege, right? <laughs> yeah, you had the Sunni privilege. Yeah. yeah, though my family's like, 
not Wahhabi at all, and they're very like Sufi. Uh-huh. So they so there's a split in my family too between the people that got really influenced by life in Saudi and they think this oh silly old school stuff from our family about being Sufi and spiritual and into music and shit is all yeah. so stupid and we need to turn to the purer Saudi ways. So right. that battle's always ongoing. But that's I, I think that that happened. Uh, that's probably something that. Um, a lot of uh, Sunni Pakistani families or Indian families, you know, people who, who go there. Um, when you're Sunni and Saudi, you know, Saudi Arabia is mostly Sunni. They, have mm-hmm. a Sunni. they probably look at it, a lot of them, as a pure form of Sunniism and they start aspiring to it. Whereas with Shia, uh, the Shia families, you know, when we go there, we would know that these guys are different. Yeah. Like, we, so we wouldn't want to become more and more conservative. Right. Um, and that's why, you know, Shias in Saudi Arabia tend to be a little bit more liberal, you know, a little bit yeah. more progressive uh, than uh, the Sunnis do. Um, so, you know, that, that's another sort of interesting thing because, you know, the, the way that Shias pray is, is with their arms open. So anytime, you know, if we went to the mosque. Uh, You'd on be fa- outed. Yeah. So uh, another thing for you know listeners who don't know, the weekend over there is Thursday and Friday because Friday is the holy day in That's Islam. That's right. So Wednesday was our, you know, it's a weekend, it's Wednesday. That right, was the, like the Friday uh, over here. Right, exactly. Um, so, you know, we used to, on, so Friday, do, you know, we'd go, we'd usually be outside, um, you know, my brothers and I and my friends and stuff would be outside playing and riding our bikes and doing whatever. And uh, then if you had to, if the, if the Adhan went off, to, that's a prayer call uh, for Jummah prayers, you have to go to the mosque. You know, if you're walking around, you know, that whoever was walking, any any guy walking on the street would tell you to go to the mosque. Like in the so compound you, too? Yeah, because it, like most of, you got to remember, like mo- most of the people in my compound were Saudis. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like us and a few other foreign professors and their families. Um, the majority of people who lived at the compound. Yeah, like shops closed. Like there's some serious pressure put on people to go to the mosque. Like the shops close. I remember like going shopping outside the mo- outside the compound and you mm-hmm. get there and the fucking prayer call goes off and all the shops shutters close and then you have to wait for a goddamn hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> before they open again. I so know. that was really inconvenient. It is because, you know, especially if you're in the middle of a meal or you know something like that. I mean, there, there were some places that would actually let you stay during prayer time. Yeah. Um, unofficially. Uh, I remember that. Uh, but it's just, uh, you know, you have to time everything according to that. To the prayers. Know? Yeah. Even now, though, I have some more conservative relatives. You're like, mm-hmm. OK, so they invite you over. They're like, well, you're like, what time? And they're like, oh, well, after Isha. And we're like, well, when the fuck is that? <laughs> like, we don't fucking know. Yeah. Give us a time. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was it was weird. And um, but, you know, um, it, it's all that I knew to me that was normal. And I grew up there and I think that, you know, being in the American school was like going there. That was a whole different world. And then being part of my family, I was just like a Pakistani family and all my parents, friends who were from all over the place, uh, even their, you know, mainly Pakistani and Indian friends. Um, uh, and they tended to be more progressive and that was a whole different world. And then you had, 
you know, you going out into the city and that was uh, conservative Saudi stuff. And that, that was a whole different world. So it was, it was, uh, sort of like existing in, in three different contexts. And I, um, I kind of talk about the, in the book, I talk about what I was doing, uh, you know, d- during when nine eleven happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It I was, read that part. Yeah. So it was uh, interesting to me that, you know, when I was, you know, I was thinking about these Saudi hijackers, all these, you know, young people. And that I talk in the book about all the textbooks that they read. And from first grade, I mean, they have stuff like, you know, anybody who doesn't believe in Islam is going to go to hell. They're taught that in primary school. And when they're in high school, their textbooks say that, uh, you know, the jihad is, the, you know, the, uh, the, uh, it's the goal of every Muslim and to go to heaven and die in the way of God is a goal of every Muslim. So, I mean, these are things that they're not only taught in school, they're actually made to memorize some yeah, of these. Yeah, this sounds um, horrifying. Right. And these these things that I'm quoting to you and that I, I talk about it again in more detail in the book, um, these are actually from the reform textbooks after the U.S. put pressure. Right. On yeah, I remember you mentioning after that. So, so this is them improving it and making it more, more right. making it less hateful. Right. And uh, I, I just think that, you know, when I, uh, you know, that one spot check that he did, the, the, the snowflake thing, that, that terrified me so much as a kid. Um, that guy, the Ministry of Education guy, He's actually writing the books and he is yeah. drafting the curriculum for what kids there read. And they, they grow up with this stuff every single day. Um, they're programmed to hate infidels. Um, and that, that, you know, I, when, you, when you live there and you see that around you, it really, you know, it, it hits you. It, ma- it makes you wonder, you know, how, because, you know, I, I put myself in that situation. And I, again, like I guess, I'm, I'm skipping this one part in the book where I talk about years later after that whole snowflake incident, when I met the first person um, I had ever met from Israel, who, who I knew was Jewish, you know, I had this really weird reaction. It was almost like a fear and you know, my body tensed up like a fight or flight reaction. And it was completely unconscious. I knew it was completely irrational. I was very annoyed with myself. Um, uh, I even started thinking weird things like, oh, you know, but I love Woody Allen movies and, you know, <laughs> Einstein was a great scientist. I was telling myself all these stupid things uh, just to prevent that break. And it was so involuntary. And if if I could have that kind of reaction. Then what the first, could someone have who's grown up just like learning see, hate? Yeah. Right. So for someone for whom every day is like that day I had with the snowflakes, you know, what, what is, you know, what's going through their minds. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I thought of that when I saw these uh, hijackers um, who went in, because I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia having grievances against the U.S. I, like I know the U.S. has propped them up and, you know, there's a lot of uh, human rights abuses that they've committed against their own people, like, you know, the imprisoning women and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're also super, super rich. Uh, they had, you know, one of the top 20 per capita GDPs um, in the world. Um, at that time, they had pretty much unconditional uh, U.S. support. And, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, I, 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 the public in Saudi Arabia is actually a lot more conservative than the government. They, uh, you know, it's, Saudi Arabia is not really one of those countries. And with the exception of uh, really brave people like Moody, 
you know, the, uh, most of the people that we interacted with that were Saudi were actually, they, they didn't like the fact that their royal family was so liberal. You know, they didn't like the fact that there was music on TV. They didn't like, you know, like I told you that incident, the guy was uh, telling me not to talk about music. And I told him, I was like, you know, you have tape stores. And they didn't like that. A lot of the local Saudis did not like that stuff. Uh, so... So yeah. they they actually felt Saudi Arabia was like way too liberal for them. They thought that the yeah they thought that the uh, monarchy um, was way too liberal and it wasn't true. And, and again, well, you know, I mean, I've heard right. So uh, there the monarchy been- itself is like un-Islamic, right? Because it's supposed to be a caliphate or whatever. Like they erase any mention of anything to do with monarchy just so that you don't think about it or whatever their objective is, they muted like the word royal and king and prince and cartoons. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I think that there probably are changes now uh, with the internet and with people, you know, being exposed to other ideas, you know, social media and everything. Uh, but at the time, um, and I was actually surprised by this, that, that I actually did find that the majority of Saudi people, local Saudi people that I interacted with on that compound living there for, I don't know, close to a decade, they, they just, they, the girls and the boys, you know, they, they just seem to be a lot more conservative. Wow, that's, that's not something I was aware of, but that yeah. makes sense, yeah. So, um, yeah, I... And it it is strange. I mean, I, I think you've talked about this a lot. How uh, you know there are a lot of women themselves who who want to put their daughters in burqas. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of. I mean, in Egypt, I mean, there's interviews all over YouTube of, of women who uh, want to uh, you know circumcise their own daughters. You know, the, yeah. like FM, um, it's something that they defend. They're like, you know, I had it done. It worked for me. And of course, my daughter's going to have this. I mean, I, I think Ayan Hirsi Ali uh, uh, talks about how her grandmother actually did it. Her parents did not want uh, mm. her, uh, you know, circumcised. But her um, grandmother actually really wanted to do it. So she almost tried to do it behind her back. I, I, I apologize if I'm getting the details of this wrong, but I, I think it was something like that. Yeah, I mean, without the help of women perpetuating this stuff. And then the ones that have the freedom to choose, they also continue, right? Um, that's what makes me especially upset about these, oh, I'm so liberated and hijab is so empowering activists. <laughs> because <laughs> they are the ones with the choice now, and they choose to keep this going. So that yeah. choice comes with a burden uh, of them keeping this going for women who don't have that choice i mean look at uh, look at these i think uh, there's a there's a movement right now to go into the inauguration to show solidarity with muslims you have to wear fucking hijabs yeah. like so <laughs> it's even 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 western women so are twisted doing, this is sort of like you know if you if you were i'm going to bring my wife alishba's analogy here again that you know if if there was some uh, sort of injustice against people in the south right, and you know, people wanted to show solidarity with people in the South and everybody showed up with Confederate flags, right? They, yeah, that's that's pretty much how insane this is. Yeah, that but, is how I take their 
But yeah. there will be plenty of Muslim women saying no. And so th- those are the majority, unfortunately, who've kind of drank that Kool-Aid and say this is feminist, this is empowering, and this is my choice. And so they are the larger number. That's what the uh, Western left sees, unfortunately. They do not see the minority within the minority. And those are the people that are struggling to get rid of the, these traditions. Right. And I... I in in the um, in the book, I I say that you know uh, Islam in, in places where Muslims are a majority, Islam is a religion. But in places where Muslims are a minority, uh, Islam is an identity. Well, so, you know, like in the sense that um, over he- over here, since Muslims are a minority, the liberal conscience is sort of it, it lends itself to protecting the rights of minorities. Um, and so what they do is they, they protect the right to wear hijab, the choice to do that. And in that attempt... Well, you can protect the right to wear it without mm-hmm. praising and glorifying it's, it. It's, uh, they, they don't separate the two. So, mm. so what they do is when they protect the right to wear it, uh, they, uh, they inadvertently... Um, and in the, you know they say that there's women over here who choose to wear it as a symbol of their identity. But that same hijab in a place where Muslims are a majority is used to um, is forced onto women by their husbands and their fathers mm-hmm. and the government and um, all this. And, and they don't realize that I, I I think it was uh, I heard Don Lemon talk about this a CNN anchor mm-hmm. uh, where you know he was talking about conservatives and liberals and he was saying you know that it was interesting to him that a, a, a lot of black people and he's he's a black gay man yeah is uh, that uh, the black people vote Democrat and the Democrats you know are pretty much associated with. Uh, the the black demographic. When you um, you support people out of your you know well intentioned you know you have these well intentioned liberal ideals and you know you support a minority like Muslims, but their views are very conservative. If you look at their views, you can pretty much line them up with uh, conservative parties yeah. and conservative politics. Uh, like you know they, there's they have problems with same sex marriage. Uh, they have um, a, a lot of misogynistic attitudes. Uh, you know, the, the religion itself has, you know, it has this stuff codified in it. Well, that's so, like the uh, Muslim Trump voter that I interviewed a while ago, Sab Ahmed. Uh, she was actually yeah. pretty honest and it was refreshing because a lot of people who voted Trump, I find, are just making a lot of strange excuses. But she was like, well, no, I don't like abortions and I, t- <laughs> I don't believe in, I believe in traditional family values. So... Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, at least you're telling the truth, and that's why you're going with. Well, I mean, that's that. Now she has uh, sort of traditional values with, you know, the um, three wives and the five kids from three wives and divorces and, and the possible golden showers and. Oh yeah, the golden yeah, it's shower. all very traditional. Do you think that's true? You believe it? Um, you know. It's very funny, and that's really what matters. <laughs> I don't know. I talked with Dan Savage about this a bit. Um, you know how he talks about him being a germaphobe, so that somehow proves that, that it's not true? Yeah. I thought it was pretty weird he picked up on Hillary going to the bathroom and pointed out that it's disgusting. It kind of like shows me that he's got a, I don't know, he's noticing piss or I, I am I think you bring up a good point I mean like I, I it's I doubt that it's true I mean if the, the Russians have this information on him and everything I mean, we're never going to know even if it yeah, is well, I don't know yeah um, 
but um, it's just the idea that this guy has gone out and he's just taken like some a whimsical story from the National Enquirer talking about how Ted Cruz's father was possibly yeah, yeah. Like, the assassination. <laughs> I mean, he goes out and he tweets this stuff. Right. Well, so, he thinks CNN is fake news, but he's happy to give an interview to Infowars. It's. I mean, he's it's, happy it's, to take Infowars seriously. It's that's insane. Yeah. A, a lot of Trump supporters tend to be um, more susceptible to fake news. I mean, generally than uh, um, others are. So, <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I don't know if that's an opportunity. I'm certainly not going to take it, but. Uh, <clears throat> There's uh, yeah, it, it could get really the whole fake news thing is a is a huge problem. Yeah, it's a huge yeah. problem. It's definitely a huge problem. Um, I have uh, I, I have a friend. I guess what I was going to say was that you know he he thinks that uh, the Democrats should start using fake news against the people who fall for them because like they tend to fall for it so easily. So they should just seed all of this other fake news. Well, just did you see that guy who fed the? Um, prison planet paul joseph watson dude like fake a fake story about buzzfeed and cnn trying to release uh, something 24 hours before 48 hours before and all the guy did was just direct message this guy this Infowars guy and say i work uh, for nbc i can't say more and here's the scoop and the guy just like printed it yeah, and then he I, sent a picture of this direct message to BuzzFeed, and then they published it. And so, yeah, you know, like I, I think that uh, I, I have a lot of. Uh, it's been amazing the stuff I've seen. I've seen uh, people post stuff from Press TV. Um, Press TV is Iranian state-owned television. That is like Yikes. the Iranian theocracies. That's Khamenei's own channel that he runs. Um, and uh, Press TV, it's an English channel. It's kind of like Russia Today, which yeah. is pretty much like Putin. Uh, Putin owns that. So, um, you know, pe- people are posting stories from this stuff. And there's Trump supporters posting stories from Press TV. And I always respond with this one uh, Press TV article that is my favorite by far, uh, is when the Haiti earthquake happened, they blamed it on U.S. military exercises. Like the U.S. military caused the Haiti earthquake. What? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, it's a, you just Google it. Just Google U.S. <laughs> okay. military, Haiti earthquake. Um, well, they are powerful. If they can cause earthquakes, damn. I know. So yeah. it's um, so there's there's all of these stories and and people um just put them up all over the place and it's amazing. I actually have a lot of trust in uh, the mainstream media. I think this whole thing of mainstream media becoming an ugly. First of all, it's not a monolith. Yeah. yeah, and it's also not comparable to like these crazy, crazy sources that you're mentioning and Infowars. Like, people who try to equate the two, like, oh, there's right. fake news everywhere from all sides. It's just ridiculous. You can't, you can't make that comparison. Yeah, and and I, I, you know, I wrote for, I've I've written for CNN.com. Fake news. <laughs> fake news, and I, uh, you know, I, I was seeing stuff that is actually even for stuff that's really obvious. Um, they were rigorous about having me provide sources. So, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I, I sourced the article pretty well, but I mentioned somewhere that they, you know, they still amputate um, limbs for theft. Yeah. And they wanted a source for that. And they didn't just want any source, that they wanted something that was uh, credible. Mm. So, um, you know, they, they, they went back and forth and they're very rigorous, even their op-eds to make sure that there's no sort of factual inaccuracy. Mm-hmm. And I've been through that process. I think that... Um, 
people who've seen uh well, how can we trust you? I mean, you write for a fake news place, so I'm also I'm also a Zionist agent. <laughs> well, yeah, that and a stealth Islamist, or else you're well, not doing it right. Well, you know the the Mossad and the CIA. At least they pay you. Huffington Post doesn't. So that's the. <laughs> I'm still waiting for my checks. <laughs> I know we would be so rich. Yeah. And we had the that. Islamophobia industry. Um, yeah, hasn't paid me anything. Hasn't. Um, I wanted to say, just getting back to Saudi Arabia and this whole uh, Islamophobia thing and, you know, the way that people are there versus here uh, and uh, the Western left, especially, is that, you know, Raif Badawi is a hero for everybody right now. He's in in prison. um, And, you know, for those who are not familiar, you know, he's a blogger and he is pro-secular and pro-liberal. And he started a Saudi liberals at the website called Saudi liberals or something to that effect. And they threw him in jail and they sentenced him to 1000 lashes, uh, for insulting Islam and for starting a liberal website. Uh, so, you know, he, he's still in prison and he has written a book called 1000 lashes where a lot of his writings and the stuff that got him into trouble has been translated. It's a fantastic book, um, that everybody should read. Mm-hmm. And I, the, he has a lot of supporters in the West you know, who, who, who want him out of prison, uh, for free, you know, and he's got supporters that are conservative, that are liberal, everything. The problem is if he does come here and he says the same things, he'd be called an Islamophobe. Yeah. Like that's, well, well, the man got lashed for this stuff. Like how can anyone with a straight face call him an Islamophobe and protect this? You know, they, it's the same ideas. Like the stuff that he he does, the criticisms he puts forth. Um, if he was living in a uh, somewhere like in the U.S. or in Canada, or in the U.K. or you know one of these places, they they would call him an Islamophobe because he has the same. So so that that's what's interesting about this stuff. That if you are a uh, liberal in a Muslim majority countries, and you are fighting for liberal and secular values, right, and uh, you're essentially fighting against your Islamist government and, you know, the Sharia mm-hmm. is their constitution and so on. So, so you're, you're actually criticizing the religion, uh, the same religion that, you know, Muslim minorities, uh, in Western countries, uh, are given protection for by, uh, Western liberals. Um, so that, that dichotomy is really interesting to me and it's unfortunate too. Yeah, I mean, I try to think of it like this uh, or explain it to a Western liberal like this if they don't already understand is that in Pakistan, Christians are a very persecuted minority. But my views on Christianity don't change the second that I'm in Pakistan. Like I still would make fun of it and I wouldn't be offended by someone making fun of it. You can tell when someone's goal is to be anti the minority. So in Pakistan, if like a religious Muslim came and said, whoa, Christianity is so fucked up and so violent. And so so you can tell the difference between someone just saying, well, this belief is nonsense because it doesn't make sense. And Mm -hmm. well, let's target this minority. Right. You can see that with people who hate Muslims, too. And those who only want to focus on Islam. Like to the extent that if I ever, ever in like 10 days tweet one thing 
about Christianity. It's like, well, well, but what about Islam? Like, I put up a picture of my Christmas tree, and some dude was like, well, isn't that convenient that you can mock Christianity, but you'd get death a death sentence for it well, if you tried to... You're talking about, you're talking about Twitter, right? <laughs> yeah, not real life. Yeah, <laughs> And, you well, know, no, but if you were hanging out with people like Robert Spencer, um, who called me a left left fascist today, a left wing fascist, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine that's what you'd get. Like, well, but what about Islam? You, you always get that thrown thrown in your face. I just yeah, don't hang just, out uh, with those people in real life. I, I, that's going to happen all the time because you know t- Twitter is like this one. It, it, one, there's only so much you can put in one tweet. I mean, you're not going to put like disclaimers, like 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 a pharmaceutical commercial, right? You know where, you know they always have these disclaimers at the end. Well, like know, yes, Islam up. sucks. Yes, Islam sucks. But right now, I would like to uh, right. tweet about Christianity. I know it's it's a uh, it, you just you can't do that. And that's why I I think that I I do go into my notifications on Twitter, but. You know, not very often, just once in a while. It's good uh, for you know, the sanity. We'll say that. And I mean, now I think it's it's time to go back and um, start talking about uh, uh, to zoom out and start talking about faith uh, in general, and just this idea. I mean, you know, you have uh, this glamorization of faith. Anybody, you know, if you're a Christian, you're a believing Christian, and you think that faith, having faith in uh, things that are unseen because you can feel them or whatever. Uh, if if you can fall for that, if you can actually believe as an educated adult that virgins gave birth and this guy was resurrected and he was nailed to a cross and you know this, that there was a talking snake and if you can believe all of that stuff, why would you not believe um, Alex Jones? You know why would you not believe all these other conspiracies? This stuff is related. You know, the it's it's not about uh, and when you glamorize faith as a virtue, when you glamorize believing things without evidence uh, as a virtue, uh, you're actually inadvertently supporting um, the exact same argument that jihadists make. They believe something because they just believe it. So faith itself is toxic. Believing stuff without evidence is toxic. And we need to go back to that conversation. And that includes uh, Christianity. I mean, people talk about evolution. Well, not believing in evolution isn't going to kill anybody. Well, y- yes, it is. If, you, if, you're, um, if, if you're going into, if you completely take evolution out of the school system and you have people going and doing science degrees and going to medical school uh, not understanding how evolution works, uh, there's uh, entire phenomena that, that work according to like antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, yeah. Since the antibiotics are useless now is because mm-hmm. bacteria evolve uh, to that be- just terrifies me so right. much. <laughs> if, if you don't understand these processes, I mean, we do right now. People don't think of it as such a big deal because since before penicillin, I mean, pneumonia was I mean, now heart disease the biggest killer. At that point, pneumonia was right at the top. Yeah, you know, pneumonia and these infections were the biggest. Uh, issue but these uh, so are like specific things in faith that you're talking about right um mm-hmm. that are very harmful and very toxic but what if we well, got it well, hammered it down to a very like benign like you know i don't have a problem with people who are believers if they would just like keep it to themselves like some people are on a mission to deconvert everyone Right. I don't think that's a realistic mission. 
yeah, I, I, I don't think that is either. And it's, it's weird. Uh, people ask me about my book and my book specifically, I say that I'm, I'm this book. The purpose of this isn't to deconvert anybody. It's basically to tell the story about, you know, a whole, whole bunch of people like this who exist, who think this way and to t- tell you how, what caused my deconversion. Yeah. You know, so that like, people can think whatever they want. But, um, the, the reason, and I actually think that, you know, even the benign stuff, uh, has like, like, you know, if you, an analogy would be, you know, protecting the rights of Muslims here, you know, wearing hijab in solidarity. I mean, this could look on the surface, it could look really benign, but for those who know what the implications are, um, underneath the surface, but that's not the, you know, the idea of protecting Muslims isn't yeah. faith-based. That's just liberal values yeah. getting that's liberal messed values. up. But uh, I was talking specifically about, you know, about wearing the hijab and solidarity and everything as part of that sentiment. Right. So if you have uh, it's I think it is similar, even the benign stuff, the uh, when you talk about having faith and you talk about people who believe and, you know, this is just my faith this is just what I believe. Um, it's important for them to acknowledge that that is not a rational path to take. I mean, yeah. there are people who, uh, because faith is just toxic. I agree. Believe. We can't lend it any credibility. We can't glorify religion. We can't say we should respect it. I agree with all right. of that. But I'm just not on the path to deconvert everyone or, you know, just say, well, your religion is stupid. Like, I was there. I was there yeah. when I was like a younger uh, non-believer, I think, uh, an angrier one. And I think there is a place for it, definitely. Um but here's an example. So I was having a conversation with a with a Muslim woman who hosts interfaith events, and mm. she was agreeing to a, possibly host Satanists at one of her yeah. interfaith events. And I thought that was so cool of her. So I'm yeah. having this really productive discussion. This is also on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but then some... One of these atheists comes along and says, oh, what about your stupid religion or something like that? And I'm like, okay, well, here we go. Yeah, I agree. Religion is stupid. Her religion is stupid. Islam is bad. But this is not the conversation I'm having. I'm trying to see if we can make an interfaith event happen Uh, with Muslims and Satanists and Christians. No, no, I, I agree with that. I, I mean, I, I myself don't do that. I think uh, what we're talking about is the way that you approach people. I mean, you have to, and my, my whole book is about this. It's yeah. about how to, uh, you know, setting the stage for a conversation is sometimes more important than having the conversation itself. Um, you know, th- that's one thing. It's one thing to go up and say, well, you know, your religion's stupid and it's, you know, even if it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's another to just talk about the idea of faith in general say that you know if you have uh, just talk about how irrational it is yeah i think that absolutely i'm on board with that because there's already way too much respect given to religion but yes there's a time uh, a place and a way to do it yeah and uh, you know when people talk about goals and they talk about well this is what we got to do with immigration policy or or, you know in 2050 most of the people in the world are going to be muslims every ex-muslim i know has uh, muslim parents so, you know, it's just this idea that just because, you know, there's a demographic, they're going to breed and their kids are going to be the exact same way. Yeah. That, that assumption, you know, is, is, it's, it's problematic and, and, and we can change that. And the reason and the way that we change, I think what's more important than the goals and the destinations uh, is the process. 
And the process is to teach critical thinking skills, is to tell, you know, you have, uh, if, if, you know, when we talk about immigrants coming in and all the risks and all of that, I mean, there are things that we can do with young people, with young Muslim people, one of the things that we can advocate in, in Muslim communities. And now I think... Well, that's what I, I like to work towards, right? With the picture books and stuff. But no, right. but no one with power really stands up for that because once uh, it's exposed as being Islamophobic, then that's just it. No school board, no teacher, no one really wants mm-hmm. to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Uh, but that, that's going to change. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I was actually really surprised uh, to see, you know, we're talking about mainstream media. Uh, I, I was surprised to see that, uh, you know, the CNN actually covered the story, the Saudi women. The Saudi women, yeah, but they had some trouble with that. But I'm right. glad that it ended up happening, yeah. They did, and, you know, when I heard her talking about it, talking to the media, there are actually four uh, Saudi girls who were actually daughters of Prince Abdullah, or King Abdullah, I'm used to calling him Prince because when I was there, yeah. Was, um, and uh, they're under house arrest, and I think yeah, they did I read about that. TV. One and, of them uh, was like starving or something like that. I it was just horrible conditions. Yeah, yeah. and uh, one of them actually Jawahar, uh, the the I think she's the youngest one or the second youngest one. Um, she she was uh, she went to school with my sister. And she's she's friends with her, um, uh, and I I knew some of her other friends as well. And I actually did an interview. I still have the interview. It's uh, you know I taped it, and I was going to actually write it up into an article. But you know, there's just people who don't want to. They're just not receptive to it, and I might bring it up now. Uh, but I saw that CNN article, you know, on mm-hmm. uh, Saudi women. Uh, then I saw in the Guardian, you know, there was a great article about a slacker Muslim. Was like, what yeah, I, I saw you tweeted that. Yeah, um, and uh, there was also an, an atheist from a Muslim background. By uh, the way, the, can I say that I really love the title of your book because it pisses people off on both ends of um, bo- oh, yeah. both ends of the spectrum. Like it pisses off Muslim bigots and it pisses off anti-Muslim bigots. Like you can't be both. You can't be both. You can't be an atheist Muslim. What is this? Well, every time somebody says that, it makes my publisher really happy uh, because that is what. Um, that's what they want to do with the title. They want to have that, that they want to drive that reaction. But I was going to say the same thing that I was actually going to talk about the book is that um, this last week, the New York Times reviewed the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the reviewer was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Who was yeah, which is Muslim, so cool. Right? And uh, I... And he's had, Muslim. He's a practicing Muslim. He's so. a practicing Muslim. And if someone had told me that he was reviewing it before, I would not have expected a good review. But he... I, I could not have uh, even imagined like the, the 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 kind of review he gave the book, I and mean, he really loved the book, and he's a believing Muslim, mm-hmm. and that that made me think. I'm like, there is something happening. I mean, this is not the kind of thing that you would see in the New York Times or CNN or the Guardian, um, you know, bringing out these stories of people who are ex-Muslims, uh, but it's happening. You well, know, here's the thing. I think when when I was reading your book, I could sense like throughout whatever I read was that it was coming from a place of compassion, not hate. Mm-hmm. And you have to earn the trust of people that you want to impact. So yeah. having that really hateful approach towards Muslims, which I see a lot of people 
even some with legitimate grievances that, oh, so many of them are so ultra-conservative and so ultra-Orthodox, how can I relate? And uh, they're homophobic, and then they start, you know, quoting the pew polls at me, and yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. But you're never going to change. This is just going to increase polarization, this attitude. I, I think that, yeah, that you nailed it. The... Um the the way a running theme through the book is the separation of Islamic ideology from Muslim identity. Mm-hmm. And what I have found personally, and uh, I, I think when I saw the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar review, I, as, I actually saw that work. Yeah. Uh, what I consciously tried to do in the book is lock down the connection on identity. So you talk to people, you're like, hey, you know, th- these are my experiences growing up as a Muslim. You know, I saw these, uh, all, all this stuff that happened. I saw in Saudi Arabia. I, didn't, I understand why they are this way. I grew up with these traditions. I still value them. These are the things I still take part in. And yeah, like I'm like you. We've been together. We remember when we did this. Remember the, the Ramadan TV shows. Remember you know, all these things mm-hmm. that we connect. And then once you form that connection and you know that the person is, uh, you know, you've locked that connection. Well, you're locked- humanizing it. Yeah, then once you have done that, then you build and you start talking about the ideas. Yeah. When you do, that's when people are more receptive because now they're not taking it as a personal attack. They're not taking it as an attack on their identity. Uh, They're separating the ideas from the identity because you've already locked down the connection with Mm -hmm. the identity. So they know that you're not attacking that because you have the same thing. Um, So... And, you know, it's a, this is a very complicated way of saying that, you know, once you find things that you have in common as people, then it makes it a lot easier to debate ideas. And uh, that's what I tried to do in the book. And, um, that, and I see that it's working. And, yeah, and well, that, and that's why I think it's, it's going to get a, a good, a better reception from Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is what it is needed like that. And, and that which is, is the amazing to me because I have I pulled no punches when it came to skewering the religion, the actual faith. That's um, great. I, I ripped it apart. I mean, there's a chapter in it called the Quran misinterpretation, misunderstanding, and metaphor. Mm-hmm. That's the title of the chapter. Um, where I actually go with you know some of the more some of the most I guess popular verses. And I've completely, completely skewered them. But once you lock down the the Muslim, the identity aspect, once you have the the term Muslim, the title, suddenly even that is something that uh, the progressive Muslims like like uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were receptive to. Um, and you know, I, I it's I, I'm still kind of figuring it out. I don't understand it. And he, he's not the only one. I mean, there are other um, Muslims. I, some of my mom's friends, you know, they, they've been receptive to it. It's, uh, it's fascinating to me how that's happening. How the fact that you can actually communicate these super blasphemous ideas and have believing Muslims be receptive to them. Um, yeah, so as far as the title, the title is just basically a play on the fact that people can't shake the Muslim label. There are millions and millions of atheists living in the Muslim world. This is documented by polls, including a Gallup poll that showed that at least 1 million people in Saudi Arabia, 5% of the population, considers themselves confirmed atheists. So, you know, there's millions of them, but their governments won't let them shake the Muslim label. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, people like Trump with his Muslim bans and everything, he's lumping them all into one category. But And that's actually uh, making more people want to use it in retaliation, right? And that's what the far right does with the hijab as well. It kind of makes martyrs of them, of 
conservative Muslims. And then right. they get propped up. So, and then people like you and me are stuck in the middle of the left and the right, <laughs> screwed as always. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about um, Saudi Arabia again before before you run off into mm-hmm. the night. Yes, um, that's, that's what I do at night is I run off into the night. So, <laughs> just like right now, yeah. The atheist Muslim man. Flying around with a cape. Right, with my guthra. Oh, that's right, your thobe. (laughs) Yeah. But Jarir Bookstore, man, I love that store so much. Like, so when I moved to Canada, Mm -hmm. I never found like a stationary store that was comparable because, you know, Saudi Arabia has its strange, like, strange um, luxuries as well, right? Like in the middle of this horrible theocracy, there are some things it that are just... Yeah. Yeah. Like, like a little haven. It was an oasis. Yeah, so it was yeah. like an art store, a stationery store, a bookstore, but it was like... I don't know what it was like in Riyadh, but in, in uh, Jeddah, it was... Yeah. It was three stories high. You could get like yeah. a shopping cart and it had like, you know, these fancy gold wrought iron staircases everything was so ornate like over like donald trump style (laughs) (laughs) trump tower yeah golden staircases golden uh showers no (laughs) and you know what's funny uh speaking of golden things uh you know this whole anti-america sentiment that you hear about coming from saudi right Mm -hmm. but the um, adopting of like American brand names is something that always struck me as so strange because even in the holiest of places mm-hmm. where a Westerner is not allowed to set foot, the first Uh-oh. thing you would see when driving into Mecca, and we went quite frequently only because we lived like 45 minutes away, mm-hmm. and all our relatives would come and visit us and ask them to ask us to take them. So hooray, I got to do a, a lot of mini pilgrimages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, always you'd see before anything else is the golden arches of McDonald's in the distance. <laughs> and so then you see the mosque. I, 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 when I was younger, actually, there was no McDonald's and no Coca-Cola. Oh, and, and so that was a Jewish conspiracy. I biggest, remember that. Yeah. McDonald's and uh, Coca-Cola were owned by Jews, so they, they didn't have that. Uh, that, that was the rumor, at least. I don't even know if that's true. I remember hearing that, and then one day we no, got Coca-Cola. and. I, I remember the first time I actually went to the U.S., and it was on vacation with the Disney World. So my, uh, my, my dad took us all. I was 12 years old. And when I came here, I was because I used to go to an American school. And they all used to talk about McDonald's. I'll wait till you have McDonald's. McDonald's <laughs> best. And you know, I was a kid, and I just wanted to have McDonald's. And I, I remember because that's the one thing we didn't have there. Uh, so I ended. There was no Coke. It was all Pepsi or Bibsy. Bibsy, yeah. Say that there's a, you know there's no P in Arabic, right? It's all so it's Bibsy. I want to bark my car, you know things yeah. like that. So I have a theory that the original name of Saudi Arabia was actually Saudi Arabia. Um, and because oh. Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway. I don't know whether to laugh at or cry at that, but. Well, you can laugh. It's okay. It doesn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I feel so bad for like liberal Saudis, right? 
Because that's the one country that everyone tends to generalize and make fun of and say it's so barbaric. And But I'm mm. sure there's like a handful of people that are, that are there that are like, I am not like that. Please don't group me in. No, I mean, they they know. I think I think I they know, know. I know. But, but I feel bad just, for them. Uh, you're right. They they can't they can't shake it. And this is what I was. I mean, this is a. You guys can like the listeners can go and Google this. Uh, it's a win Gallup poll that actually shows that um, that the five percent of Saudis consider themselves confirmed atheists. And I was wondering about this because you know there's all these uh, in on Saudi TV. There was a recent clip on Kuwaiti TV. Um, where uh, TV anchors are really worried about this wave of atheism that's spread throughout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was actually really stunned to see that result. And, you know, 19% of Saudis in the same poll said that they were non-religious. They described themselves as non-religious. Well, that's as really atheist. hopeful. That's really great if that's... And imagine how many more are just too scared to think mm-hmm. or say. So. Yeah. But per, for perspective, um, in Italy, that number of non-religious is 15%, which is less than Saudi Arabia. Um, and in the U.S., the number of confirmed atheists is also 5%, which is equal to Saudi Arabia. It's the same percentage. Oh, I don't um, know. That just doesn't sound right to me. I, uh, You know what? I uh, When I saw the poll, it's a recent poll, um, it didn't sound right to me either. But then I look at all of the mails that I'm getting. I like I people send me pictures. I've, I've got this guy sent me a picture of two copies of my book that he smuggled into Saudi Arabia. Actually I tweeted. saw that for the compound library or something. Right. And, and these are the people who publicly tweet. I have gotten pictures from people that you just send them to my inbox. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I, I've heard from them, especially a lot of like LGBT Saudis, and uh, you know I hear from them a lot. Uh, so you know it's um, I, I and I you know I there's another story I was about to get into uh, about this guy who just emailed me just last week, but I realized if I talk about it, I might give away uh, some of his um, personal details or oh, identities. Okay. So okay. I won't get into that right now. I think until I figure out a way to tell it uh, without. Yeah. Yeah, but there, loads and loads and loads of messages. And I was wondering, they, they were increasing over the last seven or eight years since I've been writing. And um, it, it completely, and I, I was thinking, you know, that, that this is, all of this stuff, there's got to be, I mean, the numbers are so high. I mean, this is my anecdotal experience, but it seems like there's something happening. Uh, but now when I'm looking at it more and more, it seems like this is real. And it makes sense. I mean, you've got the internet, you've got these people looking at... Yeah, that's going to change everything, I think. Even though they can't access a lot of sites, just having Twitter and Facebook um, gives you access to a lot of different perspectives, which we didn't really have in Saudi. So that's... that's And there was this guy who uh, translated uh, the God Delusion. Right, I heard about that. Arabic, and and just in Saudi Arabia, he got 10 million downloads. Um, you got to be brave to download that in Saudi, right? That's awesome. It is. Uh, it's so. I. I, I am. I, I am probably. Uh, people do ask me if I'm optimistic, and I tend to be more optimistic. But I'm cautiously optimistic. But I do see a change. I mean, my reference. Yeah, yeah, I see it. I mean, we we've seen it happen. Uh, like. Before our eyes, even right from when the internet did not exist, and from now, like yeah, and and my reference point is a Salman Rushdie case. Like when I 
when I look at things now and everyone's like, oh, things are getting worse, you know, everything's really tough for uh, non-believers and this and that. And I, I look back at the Salmanrasi days and, I, and by no means is life suddenly rosy for ex-Muslims or for non-believers. But we've come a huge way, a long way from the Salmanrasi days. Yeah, it's, it's well, really, there's been a lot of progress, and I, I'm seeing it, like especially now, as the numbers grow. Um, <laughs> there are even factions within ex-Muslims. Like there is the sort of the, the super liberal ones, the sort of conservative ones. There's like Shia ex-Muslims and the Sunni ex-Muslims. <laughs> it's all kinds of crazy shit. Like you know, I mean, you know, you know about this. I mean, you you guys, you've seen this stuff online. And yeah, I'm you, happy to be kind of outside of the ex-Muslim politics yeah and but the the fact is i mean usually when you have a movement that grows to a large extent becomes really really big in size then you start getting factions that's actually a symptom it's an yeah. thing that uh, it's uh, this is something that's gotten big enough and there's enough people out there and talking amongst each other that they have different views that's actually yeah, such a good thing. way to put it ali because some of it has been bothering me so mm. i see like a lot of ex-muslims kind of leading way right mm -hmm. way to the right yeah and i understand yeah. that that's really alluring and it's kind of easier and the right is so welcoming of people who just don't like islam and the left is really not so why would you stick around so I get I, it. It's a lot of anger. There's a, the right is very, very good at mobilizing anger. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who, who may not have had experiences like you and me. Um, well, yeah, it also depends uh, on how badly you've been treated under the religion, right? Under, if you've right, been really right. badly abused by it and really, really affected by it, then I can see um, the need yeah, to yeah. lash out in anger. Yeah, there are there are people that are going to come out and, you know, they're going to look at uh, someone like, you know, if they come from a really, really rough place and they've barely just gotten out, you know, by the skin of their teeth and they've escaped and they've finally gotten here. And then they see, uh, you know, they hear this conversation with us and, you know, they consider us to have privileged selves mm -hmm. because, you know, we're still cool with our families and things yeah. like you know, they'll look at this and. You know, they'll be like, well, you know, that's not my story. I, I'm angrier than that. This is bullshit. But yeah. I don't want to say assalamu alaikum to people. Just I don't fucking want to say assalamu alaikum to people. That's right. one thing that really pisses me off, too. But yeah. <laughs> I still do it. I, I become a social justice warrior when it comes to, like, saying salam. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know that's that's what I'm trying to say is that's that's your story, that's your experience. You're also a woman. I'm a man. Like there's a, your experience, even in a liberal uh, sort of progressive family, is going to be a, a lot different than what I had. Because you know, as I may have like ideological differences, I'm probably okay with going out and saying assalam alaikum to uh, when I go into a, a, you know a Pakistani grocery store or whatever. Yeah, um, I may be okay with it. Uh, but, you know, for you, because, you know, you're a woman, your experience, even though we had sort of similar family backgrounds and uh, and stuff, was very different. My sister and I, we lived in the same family, have totally different experiences uh, from, you know, living in Saudi Arabia. There are things that I could do that she couldn't. Yeah. It's pretty much everything. Um, so, like, the, even even within that, you know, th there's many differences people have, and that that experience sort of informs what they align with. So, and, and the, the problem is the unfortunate thing is that the right right now, like, you know, your people like Robert 
Spencer is, and I, I, I think he's, I, I want absolutely nothing to do with him. But, uh, oh man, you just sent him after me again on Twitter. Thanks, Ali. I'm sorry. <laughs> Or maybe I, I, it's it's a symptom when people are coming after you. It's a symptom that uh, you know you're you're getting through. Mm-hmm. If you're getting through, and uh, you know you're you're right there, there are people um, who have been doing this stuff for years, and they've been the public eye for years, and they're sitting there and taking the time to respond to every little thing you're saying. That means that you have enough influence. No, they're just randomly attacking me when I'm not saying things to them. Like he just That's, came at me a month later. Even more that you're getting through. That means <laughs> you, know, you have people, you have influential people that you've had on your podcast. You've had these conversations. Remember the Nick Cohen episode? You had him on. That was an excellent conversation. You had Sam Harris on. That was an excellent conversation. People seeing this, and you know, there 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 are people that are appreciating what you're doing. Right? They are listening to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, your message is getting through. So, and, and this is what it is. What I was going to say was that, you know, the right so far, the only people who actually had some sort of avenue for these people coming in who were very angry, um, you know, the left needed this alternative. You're part of that. Mm-hmm. That differs from them. You're kind of encroaching on their territory and mm. it's working. Yes. It is it's working. Um, you're getting these people who attack you and that happens. I mean, that I, it happens to me all the time too. The, you know, I just don't. I, I don't have that. I, I just can't go into my notifications often. I can't do it. Like it's it just, uh, you know, it's way too time consuming. And uh, the world I've seen outside Twitter is it's just so much better. Way more, we, and it's more significant. It's more representative. I mean, yeah. to, you know, Twitter is a very, very different animal. Um, so I, um, I, I, I do look at it that way. I, but I yeah, know. but so so I've talked to like uh, ex-Muslims sitting in Pakistan who are like, I have to pretend to be Muslim this Ramadan and I cannot eat. And I'm here like terrified that they'll find me out. So I'm praying and mm-hmm. I understand how painful. I mean, I can't even fully... Uh, understand because in my family it's always been like well I go to my parents and tell them well this is bullshit and then they get a little bit annoyed at me and then we argue a bit and then that's it whatever uh yeah, yeah. but I have never known that kind of fear of my own family so so I'm very privileged in that regard but then then I see them they're like well Tommy Robinson is a hero Tommy Robinson don't let any more Muslims in and I'm like you're the one that wants to get out of there like that but, but, includes you, know, you so we'll agree on Tommy Robinson. I don't understand the appeal. Um, I, I don't think he's consistent. I think he's very articulate when he goes on talk shows and then after that, uh, his actions and everything just are not consistent. Well, that's the thing, right? He's that's great on some of his speeches. I've talked to him. I've yeah. advocated for him. But it's I, not. I, I remember uh, you told me, but um, I think that, you know, you know when you were talking about you're not going to go up and, and tell people that your religion is stupid. So mm-hmm. is what I do is when people are aligning with uh, people like Tommy Robinson or, you know, people like Robert Spencer, I like to engage them. But, yeah, no, but, I, I engaged him, yes, and I think I, I might have convinced him. So sorry, continue. Instead of looking at what they're saying, and I try to do this actually all the time. Instead of looking at what somebody's saying, I always look at why they're saying it. And uh, the reason that they're saying it is because they're coming from this place that's really angry. They're coming here, they're not seeing any of, you know, we're sitting here, oh, Ramadan in full house, it was a great moment, and they don't have that experience. Yeah. And uh, so they're looking at someone like Robert Spencer or they're looking at somebody who's more right wing and, and they think that, OK, you know, this guy's right. 
and I'm going to go with them because they don't have the alternative and, and they're looking for a voice. They're looking for a community to belong to too. And that's the reason they're saying what they, what they're saying. So if, uh, if we do provide them, if, you know, people, especially liberals provide them with another door, mm-hmm. you know, that they can open for them, then, then I think they will come around and, and they, I, I've noticed it personally. I mean, yeah, I, I think it just takes some time, right? It does. Uh, you start off very angry and then it sort of peters out. And then you yeah. start thinking rationally again. When you're coming out of an abusive situation, you can't expect people to think rationally. Right. But I just it's like the, to show it in the sense that, you know, in the West, some people on the left have been in very bad situations with the Western right. So that is their main enemy. So they'll ally with anyone to combat that enemy, even if that is like the Islamic right, as bizarre as that may seem. If it's pissing off Fox News, if it's pissing off Christian conservatives, they will get in bed with Islamists. And so mm-hmm. these people are in Pakistan who want to get in bed with far-right Westerners, like Tommy Robinson, they're doing the exact reverse thing. So they're allying with another type of far-right right. just to yeah. piss off their far-right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's a lot to... A lot of this, I, I think it's just a, it's, it's a process. We'll go through it. And, uh, but I definitely, am, well, you're, you're right. This is a symptom of success. that there are options. Yeah. So that's, that's a great way to put it. Thank you so much. Like, that's a great optimistic but I, note. And once you start thinking of it that way, you know, that all of the other stuff and the little responses and little exchanges here and there all over the place, they start having less and less meaning. And uh, you realize that the, the reason that everybody is responding, getting so riled up to you is because of the message you're putting out. So you don't want to get derailed into like responding to all these people. You yeah. want to continue with the message, the one thing that was riling them up in the first place. Right. So and I, I think that's a very, very important thing to do is just stay focused on the big idea and the message, because their goal is to drag you down and get you into the minutia. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't live your whole life wearing a bias and going through all the shit that you did in your whole life to come here and then, you know, talk about just argue with like, I, I, well, at least I didn't, you know, the little eggs on Twitter. <laughs> Those fucking Twitter eggs. Oh, they're the worst. Uh, yeah, because they, they can be, right? I mean, that, that's, that's. I think I had a Twitter egg like argue with me about being anonymous, about uh-huh. how I'm an anonymous coward. And I was so mad because. Well, I'm like, you know, you're a Twitter egg. So that's the thing. You're not going to be able to explain that to somebody. I know, I know. So there's no point. Like, I, I just, uh, I mean, that's why I wrote a book. It's just like, you know, eventually, if they're interested enough, they'll read a book. If they don't read a book, I don't really think that I could get to them anyway. Yeah. And if I could get to them, it's not going to happen on fucking Twitter. Yeah, yeah, not in 140 it's, characters. Just yeah, let it so, go. So I just don't bother. Twitter's like, it's a broadcasting tool, it's a way to get out your ideas and your. Uh, the, the stuff that you want to spread out. And, and yes, it's good to engage with people who I think if somebody has a reasonable argument that I respect, um, then, you know, I'll engage them for a little bit mm-hmm. as I can. Uh, but otherwise, it's just... Uh, well, it's it, very hard it, if it's like a famous... I think it distracts you from um, your main message. Uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. You were saying it's, it's hard. It's like a famous person to that that's sending like a thousand followers or hundreds of thousands of followers after you like one mm-hmm. time my good friend Tarek Fata <laughs> said like oh, a cu- friend too, huh? yeah. <laughs> the guy 
guy who thought that you were uh, <laughs> somebody's undercover wife. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> right, but, that guy. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I wonder. I forget whose wife he thought it was. Oh, I, now it all makes sense. That's why you've been on my show three times because you're sitting yeah. right across me in the living room. No. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah. Uh-huh. So he once tweeted about me being a burqa supporter, mm-hmm. like which is, I there is no kernel of truth. I am the harshest anti-burqa person ever. Like I think you and I have had disagreements. About yeah, yeah, yeah. So he just tweeted this thing about me being a, a, like pro burqa and how I should be ashamed of myself or something, and then all his like right wing Hindu nationalist fans, like hundreds of them, started attacking me for being pro burqa. Yeah, that's uh, you, you know what that's happened to me too with uh, you know Talib Kweli, the rapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember so that. And, you know, you'll send people after you. And eventually uh, what I do is like if I have something to say, one or two things to say, I'll say those one or two things. Yeah, and then just let and it be. I just back away and I keep on, I move on to something else because you, you can't, like what, you can't, you just can't do it. It's a waste of time. It's toxic. What they want you to do is they want you to be distracted and be derailed from what you're doing. They want a reaction out of you. They want a rise out of you. And these are people who, by the way, hate to be ignored. Yeah. Especially this guy, if he tweets at you and if he says something, and I remember this, like if he, if he tries to uh, do and, and you don't respond to him, that he goes apeshit. He'll go nuts because he, he, the way that he says stuff, it's incendiary. It's like needless, it's provocative. It's even false. Like most of the time it's false. And he'll say things because he wants a reaction. Right. And, I think uh, he said that you, you and I or ex-Muslims from Pakistan are like into Islam and yeah, I know, I know. weird, weird it's stuff. A, yeah. and, and you can't and, – and chances are, you know, if you're outside the Twitter world, um, if you're not able to take what someone's saying seriously, most reasonable people aren't taking them seriously either. So you can, you know, kind of take a little bit of solace in that fact. Mm. Um, I've, I've, you know, been doing this for a very, very long time. And, uh, especially the work we do, it just comes with the territory and, um, uh, you, you just gotta be able to navigate it with, you know, a cool head, not do you, you gotta be able to respond to the stuff that merits a response and not react to things. Yeah. Yeah. Merit any reaction. So, um, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah. And if anyone that's listening is wondering what these secret undercover wife stuff is, you should check out the Polite Conversations episode with Tarek Fatah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Well, thanks for coming on and chatting about life in Saudi. Um, yeah. It's awesome. Always comparing notes, especially with someone who's had such a similar background. And Saudi is such a strange place to grow up in. You know, the longer I've lived outside it, the the more I realize it. But yeah, but yeah, good luck with everything else that you're doing, and keep on doing awesome stuff like that book. Everybody, check Ali's book out, The Atheist Muslim. And yeah, all right. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, you take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it making some noise about it or contributing via patreon patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes no ian mangoes also you can follow me on twitter at nice mangoes if you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly patreon one you can do so via paypal 
nicemangos.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no E in mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help. Thank you.